0: Sup, Thrill Seekers? I'm Connor.
1: And I'm Dev. And you're listening to a special episode of Mass Hysteria. Aren't
0: they all special?
1: Bingo! welcome or welcome back to mass hysteria um hello hello this week has been nothing short of stressful
0: yes it has <laughs>
1: uh i was moving we're borrowing a laptop the sound quality might improve it might not we don't know it's like either like a fun game we're seeking forgiveness um not permission not permission forgiveness uh Connor just farted into the microphone while I was testing it. So that's where we're at right She now. said it
0: hurt her ears, so my laugh goal is complete.
1: <laughs> um, but today we have a wild case, and uh, I'm actually really excited about this one because I hadn't heard about this. It's like a crazy story, but also it's one that I think most people will know one of the characters if you grew up watching PBS.
0: Mm. you were not allowed to watch. No, I you? did watch PBS because I watched, like, Between the Lions. Remember that?
1: Between the Lions. Just kidding. I don't want to get uh, copyrighted. Um, exactly. Great rendition of their song. So, yes. today For today's case, Connor and I, we uh, request your understanding and patience with us because... Like all things in life, we are mm. doing this while we are flying by the seat of our pants.
0: Because that is the only way we fly. That is the
1: only way that we do we it. We don't fly Delta. We don't fly Delta we don't fly Southwest. <laughs>
0: we
1: definitely don't fly JetBlue. We fly by the seat <laughs> of our pants. Um, so this case is honestly super crazy and I am... I get excited is not the right word because it's a sad case, but I think most people will know one of the characters because like we said, PBS. So hang on to your hats folks we are getting started can you tell that i'm disorganized okay um so the main book that we used is this book called murder new england by m williams phelps great book great book i highly recommend you pick it up if you are interested in reading more cases we honestly i didn't talk to you about this before but i think we might use this for future cases too because he dives into some lesser known uh wild cases that happened in new england and this case that we're covering today was the final chapter of said book and um, save the best for last save the best for last save the wildest for last so without further ado thrill seekers um running by itself is often enough of a nightmare for most folks aka me but <laughs> tbt to the time connor and i ran what did we do a 5k together
0: Oh, and God. Then
1: caught it like led us through the marsh.
0: Yeah, remember the time we also jogged here, like at your parents' house, and then.
1: Probably got cramps. We
0: cried. Both of us threw up. Mm-hmm. I got shin splints.
1: And then I cried again just for.
0: Because. Um, solidarity. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Posterity.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but for John Baker, this nightmare was only just beginning when his wife, Judy Nyland, went out for her usual run. Judy, an active 44 year old, Enjoyed running her usual loop in Woodstock, Connecticut, where she lived. Right now, in late August, we are fortunate to experience the long summer nights. But in December 2005, when Judy went running, it was dark before dinner. I'm really not looking forward to that happening. Losing the 7 p.m. 8 p.m. sundown. Judy usually would leave around 4.30 p.m. and be back within an hour, just a few miles after work to de-stress and stretch her legs. Uh, she was a really awesome lady, uh, in terms of like what she did. I mean as a person, but also in terms of what she did with fitness. Like she was a bodybuilder, she's a long distance runner, wow. she's loved being outside, so she's very active. So this kind of I think was part of her routine, not just for her physical health, but also her mental health. Um, the area where Judy lived and ran had very few streetlights. This made the timing of her runs all the more crucial. If she stayed out too late, she would inevitably be walking home or running home in the absolute pitch black. Even if you are not easily startled or scared of the dark, the possibility of finishing a run in total darkness is enough to light a fun- fire under anyone's bum to run quickly and efficiently. Right. No detours and definitely no additional miles.
0: Yeah, nothing else just for, like, the traffic. It, this sounds know?
1: like, honestly, how I used to run when I was growing I remember that, yeah. Like, there's no lights. After
0: school and after homework or whatever, yeah.
1: And switch up your route, people. If you're running the same route every day, switch it up, because...
0: Tips and tricks from Devon Kahn.
1: Yeah.
0: By 7.30, uh, when Judy had not yet returned, John was becoming quite concerned. It was unlike Judy to ever run this long, and certainly unlike her to push limits when it was completely dark outside. He jumped into his car and decided to trace her route. Undoubtedly, worst-case scenarios were going through his head, but he tried to be optimistic. Maybe she just twisted an ankle and was stopped and waiting for a ride. Maybe her cell phone died so she couldn't call him for help. It's easiest to assume the worst, but these things do happen. Perhaps she was just having a horrible run, and he would find her waiting to be picked up somewhere along the route. Things were looking bad, though, when he retraced her route and saw no sign of her. Sure, maybe she'd gone a different way, but that was really unlike Judy. She was always taking the same loop for running, and he began to really panic. If she was going a different way, why wouldn't she have told him?
1: John did what any responsible partner would do. He immediately called the police to report her missing. He stressed to them on the phone how out of character this was for his wife and that he feared something was very wrong. The officer who took the call seemed unrattled. According to our source book, he muttered something like, we'll send out a few troopers. But the gravity of the situation didn't seem to go through to him. And on some level, his nonchalance made some kind of sense, like this was Woodstock after all. Nothing bad happened in the large, sprawling town, with a picturesque downtown and the quaint New England vibe. The houses were spaced far enough apart that neighbors enjoyed their privacy, yet the quiet, peaceful quality of the town made it feel safe, safe enough to run alone at dusk and not think twice. The road Judy lived on was especially private, with winding roads. Perhaps she had fallen on ice or snow. It was mid-December, and it was freezing. As hard as he could, John tried not to fear the worst.
0: John had last spoken with Judy around 3 p.m., and he knew that she planned to run around 4.30 p.m. Her work schedule allowed for this because Judy worked as a social worker in the local middle school. She loved her job, and the children she worked with sung her praises. When State Trooper Gregory Trehan arrived at John's house, John recounted the information that he knew. She would run with gloves and earmuffs, most likely dark leggings, and probably a coat with a neon stripe to alert traffic. Judy did everything right to ensure her safety that day. So what could have happened to her? State Trooper Trahan used the description and information to piece together a missing persons case for Judy Nyland. If you've listened to more than one or two true crime podcast episodes or watched an episode of Dateline, I'm sure you're thinking, John has to be a suspect, right? And nine times out of ten... Yes, that statistic was just pulled out of my ass. <laughs> it is usually the spouse that You're could easily—I'm not easily, wrong—that wrong. could easily have been what was going on. Um, and did John like report her missing just to distance himself from what was actually happening? So while the police collected John's alibi, they were forced to move and think quickly. Everyone's f- heard of the first forty-eight, but on top of that, they're also racing against the freezing temperatures, and it was already below freezing in this on this night when the search started so if judy was stranded somewhere it was only a matter of time before she would freeze to death
1: and while considering john a suspect is a very valid thought he and judy had a loving and wonderful marriage and i know you might be listening and thinking yeah yeah that's what they all say but they really did and this could be corroborated by the people around them she loved animals and raising john's children from a previous marriage as her own he even said that she was a great mother figure to them according to our source book Uh, Judy even planned to open a daycare in the near future. She and John had been married for around 20 years, and they were very much in love. So, if John was not behind her disappearance, who was? Who would target the gentle and selfless woman? A teletype was sent out to departments in the surrounding area, describing Judy. She was petite, barely 100 pounds, and very athletic. John swore to police officers that Judy would never run away. It was completely out of character for her to not reach out like this. Something had to have happened. Meanwhile, the hours were ticking by. Until, at last, the first clue came. While the officers were searching the roads on and around Judy's running route, one officer located a a black headband off to the side. While John did not explicitly mention the headband, it was not outrageous to think she wore it to secure her earmuffs. Given the freezing temperatures, she could have added it as an additional layer you may be thinking that it could be anybody's headband people leave items on the ground or on the side of the road all the time and you're right they do but what the officer found near the headband was all the more shocking a receipt was found next to the headband that had looked like it was freshly printed as if it had recently been dropped in the snow the receipt though it was dated for 2 days prior it had been signed by a man named Scott DJ for the estate of Carol Spinney and so if you're like, okay, well, it's so weird about this receipt. If the receipt was printed two days ago, and they're like in the middle of a snowstorm, it would not be intact. Right. So this looked like it had just fallen out of someone's pocket. And if the name Carol Spinney does not sound familiar to you, perhaps his claim to fame does. Mr. Spinney, a puppeteer, was the man behind the tall yellow bird we all grew up with. Well, most of us anyway. Not me. Think. Big bird.
0: hmm <laughs> So if you're thinking, oh my god, Big Bird kidnapped Judy, slow down for a moment. Not that that would matter to me because it doesn't shatter my childhood. I have no connection to Big Bird. But two things. (laughs) I'm not salty about it at all. That's fine. (laughs) So two things. First, he was not just the voice of Big Bird. He was also the voice of Oscar. And second... Carol Skin, Spinney was actually out of the country at this time. He was on a vacation with his family and had entrusted his estate to Scott D.O.J. Scott was a convicted felon, but had become a stonemason and he took care of the large estate.
1: Which, like, even if someone's turned their life around, if you're going to be out of the country, I don't, I don't know, know that if I would. You should trust your entire estate to somebody that a has felon. a record like that. Although,
0: I guess, what was his record for? You know, I guess that would be the question that I would ask, you know? Yeah. Um, so at the time that Judy disappeared, Scott would have been the only one on the property. And the fact that the receipt looked so crisp, but had been from two days ago, that seemed very odd. Even stranger was that the piece of paper appeared to be covered in tiny drops of blood. Trooper Michael Robinson looked closer. There also appeared to be blood spatter in the snow near the receipt as well. And when he backed up to survey the scene, Officer Robinson began to make sense of what he was seeing. There were clear skid marks from a vehicle leading up to where the receipt was found. His spidey senses were tingling. Had this man, Scott DeJ, injured Judy with his vehicle?
1: Witnesses began to come forward uh, and say that they had seen Judy on her run. And while that was helpful, what was more helpful was that they shared that she had been wearing a headband when they saw her Uh, while they were driving past her. After Officer Robinson collected the headband, John was able to confirm that it definitely was Judy's. Things were not looking good, but at least they were starting to get somewhere in this investigation. One witness told authorities that they had seen Judy close to where the headband had been found. She was about to make a turn uh, onto the road, and the road is actually called Redhead Hill Road. um, Oh, weird. Where the accessory had been located in the snow. The eerie thing, though, was that there was a car that seemed to be following Judy. An old, beat-up station wagon, in desperate need of a paint job, was trailing behind her. With the miscellaneous clues they had, the investigators started to piece everything together. Their first job was contacting the man who owned the store where that receipt had been printed.
0: So according to our source book, um, the officers woke the store owner up at 4 a.m. Talk about a rude awakening. No fans before 8 a.m. is my policy. Not even police. No. He's
1: very serious about that. If I, I call am it very, 758, nope. I'm very I'm serious about out.
0: this, but I digress. Um, the officers intensely questioned the owner about Scott DJ. He remembered that Scott had come into the store. He said he'd actually visited the store on December 8th and 10th, the first time he was trying to buy a chainsaw with a woman by his side. When Scott told the owner to put it on Big Bird's account... The owner looked at him like he was crazy. No way was this, this going to happen, and that clearly irritated Scott to the point where he was noticeably angry. In an effort to calm him down, the woman took out her checkbook and she wrote a check for the purchase. Two days later, Scott returned for another purchase, this time to buy some gardening supplies, and he was allowed to put this on Big Bird's account. He had told the owner that he was the property caretaker for Carol Spinney. The source book describes Scott as a, quote, plain-looking man with a thick mustache that fell down below his lip line. He has the brown beady eyes of a crow, a round face, and two days worth of stubble. He appeared dirty and unkempt and came across as a loner, end quote. Sounds like we're describing our, our landlord.
1: That does. Winnie, we love you. Winnie's actually sick. We can't make
0: fun Winnie's sick. Send your best. Send your, your best.
1: love. But we love him. Um, no, this is, uh...
0: Not bad. a golden review, if you ask me.
1: Probably wouldn't put that on your Tinder
0: <laughs> profile. Probably not.
1: Also, I didn't think about this, but, like, when they're talking about his mustache fell below his lip line, it's like, you know, oh,
0: Yeah, everything gets in it, like this.
1: No, no, no. Yeah, like, well, In also, front of your teeth. There's only one man in the history, of the history, that looks good with a mustache like that, and it's Tom Selleck. Anyone else? Ugh, oh, Tom Try Selleck. again.
0: Love him. Um... So the other important detail is the fact that Scott was driving a dark station wagon, one that matched the description of the car that someone had seen trailing Judy.
1: And while well, Scott had been described by the store, store owner as a loner, he had been associated with multiple addresses. This added an element of challenge to the time-sensitive search for the mysterious gardener. Two officers who had previously worked high-profile cases were mobilized to locate Scott. The first address they had revealed nobody was there. Then the same thing happened with the second address. Finally, one house they knocked on turned out to be his brother's. When his brother answered, he informed officers that he believed Scott was living a few towns over with a girlfriend. And the girlfriend matched the description of the, uh, that the store owner had provided. So they gathered her address and took off to find her house before either Scott or the girlfriend could leave for work. It was nearly 6 a.m. at this time. They had been searching for over two hours. When the officers knocked on her door, the blonde woman opened it and was still kind of half asleep. I think it said she was, like, kind of half naked, too. Um, when they asked for Scott, she called out to him, tipping him off that it was the police. Scott Diage, uh, startled and frantic, jumped out of the bed, the two shared, with zero articles of clothing on, and fled oh, on foot out through the window. If that just went over your head, this guy was butt-ass naked
0: and from the cops. <laughs> That's amazing. And Connor
1: will tell you. It's, it's overrated.
0: It's hard to run from the cops like that, let me tell you. He didn't get too far. He was naked, after all. And if he wandered too far from his house, he would wind up on one of those lists. So, <laughs> the two officers made their way to his garage. They could tell he was close by from the sounds coming from this attachment. But yet, he was still nowhere in sight. As they surveyed the outside of the garage area, they noticed there was a crawl space. And since apparently we are the podcast that loves talking about men and walls, it should come as no surprise to anybody listening that he was hiding in a three in this three foot high crawl space beneath the house. The officers shined their flashlights inside the crawl space and were greeted with quite the sight. Initially, the two officers considered crawling up next to Scott, But that seemed less than ideal, so they approached the situation the the old-fashioned way. Pepper spray! (laughs) Scott, with teary eyes, finally came out from the space and put on clothes that his girlfriend had brought down for him. He told the officers that he had been in the habit of running from the cops, but he swore that he did not know anything, and he agreed to come down to the local station. When he was questioned, Scott still wouldn't budge. He told the officers he had no involvement in the missing woman case. With no further legal reasons to keep him, the officers were forced to let him go.
1: The two officers drove Scott back to his house and were surprised to see the van parked in the driveway. Along the edge appeared to be blood wiped onto the paint. They had reason now to obtain a search warrant for the car. Scott claimed to have no idea how that could have happened. This could just be a me thing, but, I mean, I feel like most people would notice if there was blood I mean, in their vehicle. I mean, you'd think. It's just going on all in there. Um, How did that get there? To each his own. To each his own. His girlfriend was able to corroborate his story, too. She had a full timeline of his day, and her teenage daughter backed up the account, too. I feel bad they're getting the daughter involved. Police were able to seize his car, but Scott was still not arrested. Officers at Big Bird's estate were making significant progress cracking the case. Remember we said that Scott was a stonemason? Well, as officers made their way inside the estate grounds, they noticed a stone-like arch that almost led to a secret passageway. Ahead, there was, like, a raised pagoda structure with two rowboats stored underneath it. It wasn't, like, above water, but Mm -hmm. it was, like, raised above the ground. The pagoda had what appeared to be a pull-down staircase, similar to, like, probably your grandmother's attic, and leading up to the pagoda was a trail of what appeared to be blood, fresh blood, uh, and it stopped right underneath the attic door. He picked the wrong season to commit a crime. Seriously. All this is in the snow.
0: So, when the officers got up inside the pagoda, they were horrified by what they saw. Judy was found dead. She was hogtied and covered in blood. There was also evidence to suggest that Judy had been sexually assaulted. Officers were not exactly sure what happened, but they knew Scott was a dangerous and violent man. Had he stalked Judy on her running route before striking her with his car? Initially, police believed, perhaps, that she had been hit by a car accidentally. But now, with all the blood on her body and the fact that she was hogtied, it seemed that, there was, that this was no accident. A medical examiner concluded that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head. There was a silver lining, though. Scott's DNA from Judy's body solved the cold case. In t- or a different cold case. So, in 2004, Scott had sexually assaulted a young woman in his neighborhood, but the police at the time were unable to identify who had been responsible for the heinous crime. When they collected Scott's DNA from Judy's body, they were able to match it to the DNA found on the woman who had been assaulted in 2004. Scott D a. J was a menace to society and a dangerous criminal.
1: Scott's girlfriend had been completely blindsided, learning that her boyfriend had been uh, a career criminal. She asked him to take his stuff and leave her home. Honestly, she handled that a a lot nicer than I would have. Before he left her property, though, Scott asked for just five minutes to himself. He walked into the garage to be alone. When his girlfriend got a funny feeling in her stomach, like something must be wrong, she followed him into the garage and screamed. He was trying to hang himself. She quickly grabbed a knife and made him cut himself free from the rope scott then jumped in her car and sped down off down the driveway before he could peel out and be a criminal on the run his girlfriend well i guess she would be his ex-girlfriend now slashed three of the four tires which unsung hero just saying seriously scott was shit out of luck now and the police had just arrived to his house
0: scott was interrogated by the police officers about what happened to judy nyland that night they explained how they found her tied up and beaten Scott immediately broke down and began sobbing into his hands. He told the officers that he had hit her by accident and that she had died right away at the scene. This was total bullshit. According to our source book, one bruise on Judy's body could have come from a vehicle, but every other injury was a result of her being beaten. Scott was a violent danger to society, and in court, Scott was given life behind bars plus an additional 20 years for sexually assaulting Judy's body. John Baker, made a powerful victim statement that left the courtroom in tears. The Worcester Telegram shared part of it. Quote, In a while, Judy and I will leave here together and leave behind the mess this tragedy has created as best we can. We will continually find each other, as we have so many times before. We will finish this life, perhaps enjoy parts of it, even under these circumstances, with the love that we have created. End quote.
1: They seem like they had such a
0: nice That's so marriage. sweet, like awful, but so sweet.
1: Though Judy is no longer here on Earth, her spirit certainly lives on. Every year, there is a memorial 5K run to honor the deceased runner. What Scott D.J. did on December 12, 2005 was cruel and depraved. But while he rots behind bars, Judy's beautiful spirit will continue to live on. And on that note, we will see you next week. And maybe um, don't let a career criminal watch your estate while you leave the country. Maybe
0: a good plan, Big Bird.
1: Big Bird. big Bad Big Bird.
0: Bad Big Bird. Flip the bird, Big he Bird. He
1: also was the voice of Oscar the Grouch. I don't know if we said that. But... Yes, we did. Os-ky. So he was half of Sesame Street. Um,
0: I mean, wouldn't you be grouchy if you were Oscar, too? That is true. They shouldn't really call him a grouch. It's not really fair. I didn't even watch the show, and I'm here for Oscar
1: nobody's talking about, like usual, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, till next week. Bye. Bye.